0: Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just wanna take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. open up your Bibles if you have them to Exodus chapter 14. Uh, If you're new here or you've been out for part of the summer, we're going through the book of Exodus uh, uh, for the duration of the summer. And so uh, we're moving right along. We're in Exodus 14 today. Uh, We're calling the series Dwell because uh, what is being reflected in uh, this book is God creating a people for his name uh, that will become a blessing to the world. Much of what we just talked about uh, of living generous lives comes from understanding what God has done, and what God has created us to be. And that's not a new story. That's not uh, something that we made up. That's something that God's been about from the very beginning. Uh, Matter of fact, this is what he created us to be. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover today uh, as God dwells with us uh, even now. Uh, And so I got a lot of scripture to throw at you today. Today, I'll just kind of do a quick disclaimer. It's going to be a little bit academic. Uh, So if you're the type of person that likes that, uh, congratulations. If you're not, come back uh, over the next few weeks. And it may not be quite as academic today, Uh, but we're going to be Hitting the story today that is central uh, to the book of Exodus. As a matter of fact, if I was going to talk to you uh, or, or maybe even just kind of randomly uh, do a survey of people, say, hey, what do you know about the book of Exodus? I think they would go to Exodus 14 because it is the story uh, of the crossing of the Red Sea. And uh, so there's a familiarity with this story at some level. Even if we don't know all the details with it and maybe not all the intricacies of it, there's a general awareness of this story just culturally because it's such a famous story. It's been in movies, Uh, people talk about it, Uh, it becomes an analogy or an illustration in many different realms not just in religious realms but in, in a lot of different realms and so there's a familiarity and anytime there's a familiarity with something there's a feeling like we just kind of turn off uh, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of turn back on today and what I would hope to do is shed some light I think on some of the intricacies of the passage that may lead us down a path and I'll also say this as another disclaimer uh, this is probably more of a lecture that would take a couple of hours to do and so uh, this uh, I'm going to have to skip through some things pretty quick in order to get through this today. But I want to just kind of get you on track with me, know where we're headed. Uh, Because when we think of the book of Exodus and we think of the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, we've got to kind of come out of our mindset and we've got to get into an ancient Near Eastern mindset when we jump into this story this is this story was first not written to us it's written for us for sure but it wasn't initially written to us uh, it was written in a language and an understanding and a mentality of an ancient Near Eastern mindset uh, and so there's a lot of significance and intricacies that are cultural that would help us to understand what would they have heard when the when they were first hearing this and when you first hear this story uh, I think it begins to shape an understanding for us today not just what would have happened, but the way that we understand something that is near and dear to us in that salvation. As a matter of fact, uh, I would say that the the Exodus itself equals salvation. Uh, the story of the Exodus, of the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, actually is probably the, the most mentioned incident in the Old Testament. Uh, it goes through uh, so many different uh, uh, iterations within the prophets and even in the Psalms and, and, and those type of things. Uh, there's so many of them. I can't even name all them. I could throw them up here, but you wouldn't have time to write them down. Uh, this was so formative for the understanding uh, of uh, the ancient Near Eastern Jews And even to the early church, this became so significant that the the writers in the New Testament used the story of the Exodus that we're going to be talking about today to frame an understanding of what salvation actually looks like. Uh, So we may use in our vernacular today, the word saved. uh, And we think, well, that's kind of like an evangelical word or one that was made up. Uh, It just comes from salvation. And where do we first really see salvation? Where we really see it? begin to be described through the Exodus, through the crossing of the sea, and the New Testament writers picked up on this. Uh, two quick hit, um, really quick verses on that. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, 4, he says this about anything in the Old Testament, and it relates specifically to what we're going to be talking about today in Romans fifteen four. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So when we look at the story of the Exodus, we're not uh, just looking at a history lesson. We're looking at something that even the Apostle Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, when he looked back at the Old Testament stories, he was saying these were written for a purpose to encourage us so that we could have hope. And so today, I don't want us to kind of, even though it's going to be a little academic, I don't want us just to look at it from a purely academic mindset. This is intended to give us hope. Where do we find ultimate hope, person of Jesus, and salvation? Matter of fact, Paul also said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and this is going to come back to us in just a minute. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this, uh, he goes into saying a whole lot more about uh, the story of the Israelites coming through uh, the sea and all those kind of things. But for Paul, for the early church, for the believers, Peter picks up on it as well, which we'll hit in just a minute. This idea of the crossing of the sea, when they wanted to communicate salvation, this was the go-to story for them. This is what they wanted people to understand. And so uh, I think that turns on a, a couple of different questions. And then the first thing that I want us to point out is two things: that when we think about salvation, we're going to look at it as a position, and then we're also going to look at it as a process. Uh, salvation uh, if you want to think about that word or that term or that uh, kind of what, what does that actually mean? Uh, from a Christian perspective, if you're new to Christianity, we view it uh, as a positional change. And we view it as a process. We would call with a, kind of the proper theological terminology, we would call it justification for the positional change. And we call it sanctification for the process of being changed over. And what you're going to see in this passage is you're going to see the full gamut of what salvation looks like as a positional change. And then we're going to see the, the process of change. That what God has to do is he has to initiate, he actually has to Give us new life, birth. Uh, He's going to be the prime mover in the whole story. And then what God's also going to do is He's going to walk through the process that we all go through as it uh, pertains to salvation. And so, uh, if you're new to Christianity, this is going to be good for you. If you're uh, not new to Christianity, it's kind of like old hat to you. Hopefully, this conjures some new things and wants you to plumb deeper into Jesus and into Scripture to understand more about what salvation may mean. But let me jump in. We're going to jump in at uh, Exodus chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 5, and the first thing you're going to see is you're going to see the position change, and it's going to lead into this process. Here's the positional change. When the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, what, we, what have we done We've led the Israelites, let the Israelites go, and we've lost their services. That's kind of comical. That's a funny way to say that. So uh, he had his chariot made ready, and he took his army with him. Now, uh, just a quick little brief synopsis. What has happened up this point? Well, last week we covered uh, the 10 plagues. I remember Moses had met with God at the burning bush. He'd been sent by God to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to say... Let my people go, not Moses' people, but God's people. Uh, And there was a whole, uh, uh, basically, kind of a sparring match there between Pharaoh and between God. And this sets up a framework, really, for Pharaoh um, basically symbolizing and uh, revealing the opposition to Yahweh, the covenant God. And so we have these two forces, right? We've got Pharaoh and we've got God. But what God has done is he's changed the people's position he's uh he's drawn them out uh, from captivity, what was captivity? Well, it was oppression. It was slavery. That's why it's so funny that it calls uh, calls it their services. I mean, they were they were slaves. They weren't like they we're that going to go out and hire somebody else to do this uh, like we would do. Like well, I don't like their services, so I'm going to do their services. No, this was uh, this was basically God removing what some estimate to be around two million people that were enslaved by the Egyptians. And as they're pulled out, this is synonymous with the positional change that God orchestrates in all of our life. What God does is he takes us out of captivity and he ushers us into freedom. But here's what you've experienced. If, if you would say that you're a Christian today and you really kind of got down to, uh, we were having coffee and we were gonna get down to kind of the, the, the nitty gritty details of, of this, you would say, yeah, hey, I, I know that God transferred me. We crossed over, you know, he delivered me out of sin and bondage. But what I've realized in the last few years or what I've realized over the last decade for some of us that have, uh, that was a long time ago, is you realize that you're still a work in progress don't you? I mean, you realize... that there's some still some stuff that's got to be kind of pulled away, and some new things have to come in. And if you don't see it in yourself, you've at least seen it in somebody else. Uh, you've seen somebody else that uh, uh, claimed to be a Christian, that uh, you know basically they, they're, they're a follower of Christ, but you're like, man, you can see into them, can't you? The fact that they're not, they haven't arrived yet. Uh, you, you're able to see the, the weaknesses that they have, the fact that they're still a work in process. Uh, this is what God does in all of us. And, and here's the thing is to understand that when you're delivered out of captivity, uh, when if, if that's in your future or that's been your past, when you're delivered out of captivity, what begins to happen in your life is uh, the enemy does not go silently into the night. Uh, it, it's not like he's just throws his hands up and goes, oh, you know, I guess, I guess that's over with. Uh, I have been uh, kind of reignited and refreshed as I read this story to realize that there is a cosmic battle that's going on, that there, is a, there are spiritual forces at work. And we like principles. We like to-do lists. We like those type of things. But listen, the church has got to be a place where we fully embrace the understanding that there is a spiritual dynamic There is a cosmic force uh, and what you're experiencing and I'm experiencing, what we're experiencing culturally right now, what we experience as a church right now, has a whole lot to do with the fact that there is a spiritual battle that's going on. And just the fact that you prayed a prayer and you had a positional change in your life does not mean that there is not an enemy in your life that is warring against you. And so if you're confused by like, hey, I thought I'd pray a prayer and everything would be okay, Listen, that is not the story of salvation. The story of salvation, God positionally changes you and you begin on the process. But in the middle of the process, here's the thing, is you have an enemy that is pursuing you. Matter of fact, Jesus said it himself in John 10, 10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have life to the full. You see, the enemy that is basically... given as a template in Exodus 14 uh, begins to take shape in our minds to understand that this is the way that the enemy works in all of our lives. Just as the Israelites were pulled out of Egypt and they were running away, it was as if Pharaoh woke up and he said, what have we done? And they got hot on their tracks. They came after them. And this is the thing we have to understand is we're pursuing the future that God has for us There's always something pursuing us. And we have to be mindful and we have to be vigilant and we have to be understanding of the environment that we're in. Uh, And we have to turn that on so that we can be the people that are ready to enter into the struggle. So as the story plays out for them, see how it takes shape. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. Uh, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharoth, I tried, opposite Baal-Sephon, okay? So what's happened? They have moved and where are they at now? They've got Pharaoh behind them and we are introduced to the sea in front of them. There are two opposing forces. There is a force behind them and there is a force behind in front of them. But what is happening as they see that they look behind them and they're being pursued and they look at another enemy the sea that's in front of them is we begin to see the posture of their heart. Watch what happens in chapter 14 verse 10. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites looked up and they and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "Was it because there were no graves in Egypt That you brought us to the desert to die. Now, get this. I mean, you know, they just been delivered uh, out of the situation. And so they, you know, how did that whole thing begin? Uh, Well, the, the whole thing began because they were crying out to get out of Egypt. Um, I, I, I've had this happen in my own life many times where I'm in a situation and I'm saying to God, God, get me out, get me out, get me out of the situation. I move into a new situation and it's like, I just forgot everything that God uh, has done. And when I begin to forget what God has done, I become uh, consumed with fear about the future. I became consumed about what's next. Uh, I don't know if you've you've experienced this, but uh, so much of the fear that we experience is the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of the future. It's fear of what may happen. And it's, it's telling, isn't it, that they look back and they see their past and their past that they've come out of, the captivity for many of us, the sin that we were in, the previous life we lived, uh, we say, well, I just want to go back there because at least there I knew what was going on. And we have a weird kind of like, we forget what it was really like. We recreate in our minds, a, in our hearts, a different uh, narrative about the past. Why? Because not only are we being pursued, there is a posture in our heart that draws us back to our past. And you've experienced this, I I would say, probably on multiple levels, but uh, maybe it's a a habit you've tried to kick. Uh, Maybe it's a relationship that's unhealthy that you keep running back to. Maybe it's just a mindset that you can't get over. Maybe you just have a critical mindset and you just can't get over it. And you're like, man, I wish I wasn't like that. And you just keep getting drawn back to that. That's because there is a posture in our heart that is drawing us back to what we're being pursued by. And it's a weird deal. Right, because we know that if, we, if we're logical about it, we look to the past and we're like, man, it wasn't good back there. That's not the way that I should have lived. That's, that, that wasn't good for me, it wasn't good for anybody else. But now as I'm in this place, I look in front of me and I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what's in front of me. And because of that, I just wanna go back to something that I already know. And we stand in position between two enemies and the posture of our heart is riddled with fear. And when we are ruled by fear, we cannot operate by faith. When fear is operative in our life, when it is the thing that is the, in, in the controlling place of our life, we can't operate by faith in God. And I think that's probably telling, isn't it, that that's why the enemy loves to keep us afraid. Uh, afraid of the future, afraid of change, afraid of all kinds of things. And, they're in a place right now where they're in between these two enemies and they're like, what in the world are we gonna do? Matter of fact, they start to question Moses. Uh, Watch what they say. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptian? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, let me ask you a question, class. Is that what they said? Is that what... Is that an accurate recounting of history? Well, some of you are like, yeah, no, I don't know. Is that a trick question? You know, because you're used to trick questions. Well, let's just look back real quick. Because in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, showing the heart of God. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. Go on to the next verse. And this is their response. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, what did they do? They bowed down and they worshiped. But what ends up happening is now they've, they've recreated a whole narrative based on their fear. They've changed the whole thing. and they're, they're saying to Moses, because you've got to blame somebody, they're blaming the leader, like, you know, why would you bring us out here? Didn't we say, leave us alone? That's not at all what they said. God heard their cry. He responded to their cry. He pulls them out of captivity, puts them in a place right now, and they're afraid of the future. And while they're afraid of the future, they look back and the posture of their heart is, I want to go back. This is in all of us. This shows us that there is not anything in us that is drawing us to God. There's not anything in us that is saying, oh, I, uh, you know, God, it needs to be in control of my life. We're tr- we, we have so much trouble trusting God, don't we? And so what we see in this passage is we see this principle introduced. And the principle, you see it in verse 13 and 14 uh, of Exodus chapter 14 and it's the principle of grace. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Um, When you get afraid, uh, uh, people will describe this way, you move into fight or flight, right? Typically, or freeze. Uh, but the typical thing is uh, either run away or go to fight. And because I think there's this thing in most of us that says, well, we've got, to, uh, we've got to jump in and we've got to do something. We've got to either get out of the situation, we've got to overcome the situation. But Christianity is distinct and unique in this case from every other religion and every other process of self-help out there is that we're not trying to get to God. We're not trying to build a bridge to God. Uh, We're not trying to cross over the sea. What God is calling us to do is to simply sit back and let him do the work. And for me personally, this is one of the most difficult things in my life to do. And I think with, with self-salvation projects for a lot of us, um, a lot of us will run into this over and over again is like, well, I've got to do something. I, I, I've got to actually take action in, in this situation. I've got to do something. And what God tells them to do is there's nothing you can do. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to stand still and I'm going to ask you to be quiet and I want you to let you watch me work. Because what you're introduced here in this situation is a group of people that are in front of an enemy and the enemy is the water uh, that's in front of them. And so what does God give them? God gives them a mediator. He gives them through grace a mediator, someone that will act on their behalf because watch what happens in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Now stop for just a second. Was Moses crying out to God? No, they were crying out to Moses. They were attacking Moses because Moses was synonymous with God. And so the people were actually attacking the mediator. And what was God doing in the situation? It's much like what Isaiah 53 refers to, to the suffering servant that is Jesus, and saying that he was numbered with the transgressors. He took upon the sin... He, he, he wraps him up in itself because he is the mediator. He stands in between God and the people. So you've got God on one side, you've got people on the other, you've got Moses in the middle, so you've got the grace of God moving, you've got a mediator that's going to take upon the guilt uh, of the people, but he's also going to act on behalf of the people, and he's going to be the one that leads them out of the process. And how is he going to do that? Well, God tells him to raise his staff, right? Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Now, here's where we're going to hang out and get a little bit academic for a second. You're introduced here to this phrase, sea. Uh, That's going to—he's going to raise a staff, stretch out his hand, and over the sea to divide the water. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It just seems like, well, there's a natural body of water out there. As a matter of fact, I threw a few pictures up here. I've been really enamored with this whole thing about the bridge over the Mississippi River—the Hernando de Soto Bridge that nobody can drive over. uh, Right now, I've mentioned it a couple times, probably already. But uh, it was built from 1968 to 1973. I was born. Born in 1973, so we're the same age. It's got a few cracks, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, it's all right. It's going to be better. It's going to be better, y'all. But this is when it was built uh, back in 1968 uh, and 69. This was the first thing that went in over the water. Now, getting this mindset for a second, can you imagine coming up on the Mississippi River and saying, hmm, how are we going to cross this thing? Well, the reason it's called Hernando de Soto Bridge is because the first explorer that crossed over that, the first historical account was Hernando de Soto. And he didn't have this. This took five years to build. Matter of fact, if you go through the process, you'll see another picture. And it changes. And this is it in the process, right? I think the crack's somewhere where that is, right over there. I think that's where it is. Um, But imagine for a second, this is the Mississippi River, you're you're looking at this thing, and the only way to get over it is to build a bridge. And this is the way most of us approach God, right? How am I gonna get to God? I've gotta build a bridge. I don't know if you're an engineer in the room or you've ever watched a documentary on how they build bridges, but they built what they have to do in order to do those big piers that are there is they have to create a cofferdam that hold, pushes out the water so that they can go down to bedrock and drill a foundation deep enough and stable enough to withstand the water that goes around it so that you have the ability to drive across a safe bridge here in a few months, hopefully, you'll be able to do that. Now, when you think about this, this, this is one level of fear. It took five years to build that bridge. And though it is the third largest river in the world, can you imagine the chasm between you and God because of your sin? And some of you have been not working for five years to build a bridge. You've been working your whole life to build a bridge. You, you, you've tried to do it in so many different ways. You, you've tried to uh, give more money, be a better person. you try to be a better dad, a better spouse, a better mom, a better friend. You, you've, you've decided you were gonna serve in some capacity. You've had all these different things that you've tried to do to build a bridge. And the truth of the matter is is that when he comes to God, God is saying the way to get over the chasm is not to build a bridge over it, but for God to actually make a way through it. And the story of the Exodus is exactly how God enters in to the story to push back the consequences of our sin. In order to see that in a new light, I wanna go all the way back for a second, all the way to Genesis chapter one. When you get to Genesis chapter 1, which is pretty easy to do, just open your Bible, and move past the contents page, and you get to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And the story of Genesis 1 is the story of God entering into chaos and bringing order. Uh, Familiar verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless. Uh, And that word is, uh, it could be translated the wild. Uh, I put the... Hebrew word up there for you uh, and empty, which is the waste. There's the Hebrew word for that. And I did the phonetical thing if you want to know how to say it. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit, there's the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, of God, was hovering over the waters. So when for us, Mississippi River's scary, right? You want that bridge safe, but it took a whole nother level in an ancient Near Eastern mindset, a whole different level of understanding. Uh, It incited a whole nother level of fear. And the reason for that was the waters for them became synonymous with chaos. Uh, It became synonymous with the absence of God. And, And when God, through his spirit, comes over the waters of chaos, what is he doing? He is attacking the wild, the chaotic, And he's actually creating inhabitants and order within it. Just a rehash, just a refresher of the way he did that. The first three days of creation, he orders the chaos. So day one, you've got the scripture references there. Uh, The first thing he does is what? He says, uh, let there be light. And so light comes in and it separates the light from the dark, in day two, what happens is there's another separation, the waters above from the waters below. So you have the sky and the sea separate. So uh, you could say the sky or the heavens. God is creating order from these things. And it progresses, right? Because by the time you get to day three, even on the land, now he's not only separated the waters above and the waters below, but now he's separated the water from the land, right? Right? And what did God say at the end of that? Well, in verse 10, he said it was good. Because God is good. God wants to create order out of the chaos. This is what he's about. He's creating a place that is inhabitable. And so by the time you get to the second part of Genesis chapter 1, and he orders it, what actually begins to happen, if you go to the next few days, uh, you begin to see it. Day 4. You have the sun, moon, and stars, which has always thrown people off because they're like, well, how did he create light? And then he, he created light before he created the sun and the stars? Well, if you think about it, again, from an ancient Near Eastern mindset, this was not a, a security cam footage of creation, okay? What, what they were trying to communicate through a literary technique was a theological principle that what does God do? God comes into the chaos He hovers over it, and with his spirit, with his breath, he begins to create. And what does he do? He creates an environment, and then for that environment, he creates inhabitants. And so day four, five, and six correspond to days one, two, and three. What happened in the first day? Well, he created light and dark. So what does he do? He creates inhabitants on day four, the sun, moon, and the stars, to inhabit those environments and then in day five remember what happened the sky above and the the sea below well then you've got the fish and the birds and by the time you get to day six what do you have you have animals and humans that and where do they live where do animals and humans live the land we are land creatures and i for one am going to agree with god in genesis one thirty one when he said and it was very good, right? Because I've seen some stuff that's in the ocean. I've seen some of those fish. Uh, uh, Rachel was just telling me that they were at the Red Sea uh, on their trip, and the week after they left, there was a shark attack at the exact place they were at the Red Sea. And I was like, that's perfect, right? Because that's why we don't go in the water, you know? Uh, And for us, there's a little bit of fear. I mean, if you've ever walked out into the ocean, there's a little bit of feeling like, "Eh, you know, this is really powerful. And I'm really small. But from an ancient Near Eastern mindset, from a Jewish perspective, it was deeper than just a natural fear of water. They understood that we were created for land, this is where God put us. This is how God ordered chaos. And so if, if you think about what would the undoing of that be, what would sin look like if it entered in? Well, sin would de, uh, decreate or uncreate what God had created, right? And you see the fullness of that, the undoing of that with the flood, and watch the language of this in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 7. It should be Genesis chapter 7. I think I just typed it wrong. Genesis chapter 7. This is the flood narrative. And I promise this is gonna make sense by the time we get to the end. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heaven were opened up and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, typically when we think about the flood narrative, we think about rain. It just rained for 40 days, but that's not what it says. What it says is it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But what does it also say? Where's water coming from, class? The ground. And so what is happening because of the, the, the uncreating caused by humankind's sin? It, the sin that is introduced, the violence, the hatred, the evil that is described in Genesis chapter 6 Now, when it has kind of reached its full capacity, then this is rushing in. And the way that it's referred to is through the waters. And so if you're wondering, why did God, you know, punish, if you want to say it that way, through that method? Well, the way that God punishes is God removes his hand, removes what we would call his common grace to allow the natural consequence of our sin to take place, Uh, If if there's something going on in your life and you're saying, was God going to punish me for this? Well, God doesn't have to always actively punish you. The consequence of your sin punishes you. And ultimately, the sin of your life leads in a trajectory of a direction that unless the Lord enters in and unless the Lord through his hand parts the waters, then you yourself are going to be subject to the calamity and the consequence of your sin. And we see this, right, because even in this instance, God had to do something to preserve a remnant, didn't he? And in Jesus, uh, in Genesis, excuse me, Jesus, Genesis seven twenty two, everything on dry line that had breath and life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Uh, And that uh, word for ark is teva, uh, which is not like the tevas or tevas, whatever, you know. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. The sandals, I'm in a big argument over whether they're called tevas or tevas because I grew up calling them tevas, but that's all I can think of when I read this. So just strike that. We're going to edit it out of the the recording. Um, But God creates an ark to preserve a remnant in the calamity, right? Because God is always working through his grace. And then by the time you get to Exodus chapter two, all right, we're almost to the end of this. When you get to Exodus chapter two, we see another ark. And this is when Moses is a baby. When she could hide him no longer, that's Moses' mom. She got a papyrus basket. It's the exact same word as ark in Hebrew. So they created a little baby ark for Moses. And where do they put him? They put them in the water. And why was that so fearful? Not just because that place has got some uh, reptiles that could come up and eat them, but because that was the place of chaos. They, that was the place where uh, basically there were other gods that were ruling that. There were sea monsters, if you will. That's, I mean, that's the actual thing without going too far into it. They really believed that. And, and so when you see this, God preserves Moses through an ark, and what this becomes synonymous with is for salvation, of how God is constantly bringing people through the waters and the consequence of their sin. Uh, it actually leads us to understand when we baptize someone, the early Christian practice of baptism uh, became synonymous with this. This was their understanding. Matter of fact, First Peter, chapter three, verse 20 says, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved. And how were they saved? Through the water. And then watch what Peter says in verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Now here's what we believe. We don't think the water, when we put water in there, that that water saves you, okay? Um, It's nothing special about that water. It's the same uh, water that goes into every uh, faucet. I'll just say it that way. On this premises, all right? So whether it's the water that waters the yard or whether it goes in the water fountain or into another receptacle, it's the same water. Okay? It's all clean water. It's all good. And Peter wants you to know that the water itself doesn't save you because he says it is not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not an outward washing. What is it? It is the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So here's why I say all that. Here's why I say all that is when we see the sea in front of the Israelites, we have to see what they saw. And what did they see? It's a lot of seas. When you actually see the water that they were looking at the water itself was an evil enemy. And they were they were in the I mean the definition of a rock and a hard place. They've got Pharaoh that's pursuing them, they've got their hearts that are drawing them back and they see chaos in front of them. And so what does God do through a mediator? God steps into the consequence of their sin. And in verse 21 in Exodus chapter 14, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. And that word wind is the exact same wind, this exact same word that we see in Genesis chapter one that was hovering over the water. The spirit of God was pushing back the waters. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, on dry land, and the waters were divided. Now that divided, remember how it all happens in Genesis chapter one? What is God doing? He's separating, he's dividing, he's pushing back the waters, he's telling them this is where you belong. This is the power of God. This is what it means to have a God that is in control, That in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, we have a God that is pushing back the sea. He's pushing back the water. Why? So that we can walk through where we're supposed to walk. Where are we created to walk? On dry ground. That's where he placed us. That's where he took men and women and he said, I'm charging you to create in dominion over all this stuff to be the images of me within creation and become a blessing for the world. Well, the way the story finishes out in verse 26 and following is this. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. There's a whole lot in there that I don't have time to talk about. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea and it finishes this way in verse 28 and following. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea and not one of them, survived and at the end of the story in verse 31 it simply says this this is where we'll end and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians the people what did they do they responded this way they feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and they put their trust in Moses his servant the mediator now this is the end of this whole thing for today is what was God doing back then it's the same thing that he's doing now God is delivering us out of our sin. He's walking us across on dry ground. What is our response to that? It is not to build a bridge in order to get to God. It is simply to respond in worship, to trust in God, and to trust in the mediator that he's provided. Who is the mediator he's provided? Well, Scripture tells us there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Essentially, an easy way to say it is we have a better mediator. We have a perfect mediator. We have not one that just walked through on dry ground, but we had one that actually went through sin for us to usher us into the presence of God, to walk us into the promised land. And so I end all this by simply asking you a question. God has promised to do this if you respond. Have you responded to Jesus? Have you put your trust in Jesus have you put your trust in his mediator? The one that God's provided, Jesus Christ. I'd like for you to consider that today as we bow our heads, close our eyes, as we finish up. Father, we, uh, we come before you and we, we realize, Lord, that uh, we stand in, uh, in a place where, unless you intervene because of our sin, the consequence of our sin would overwhelm us. But you promised that before the foundation of the world that you would provide a sacrifice, you would provide a way, and that though the thief would come to steal, kill, and destroy, that you've come to have life, that we could have life and have life to the full. And Lord, we want to be a place today where we just, uh, we resonate with that. We just accept that and we say, God, we want to own our sin and we want to stand back and we want to stand still. And we want to watch you work. And we want to walk from that point onto the dry ground that you've provided before us. And so, God, for the person in here today that does not know you yet, I pray that they wouldn't stop building bridges today, that instead they would trust you. Could you just today, if, if you need to put your faith and trust in Christ, would you just do that right now? Would you just say to God, God, I'm tired of building a bridge I want to put my faith and trust in your son, in your mediator. If you've prayed a prayer like that today, we would love to know about that. Immediately after the service, there's a connection card right in front of you. Um, We've got friends that are waiting at the welcome desk out front. They would love to just hear what God's doing in your life and how we can encourage you. Whatever God's telling you to do, if you need to take the step of baptism uh, to make a public profession of your faith, please let us know that. If you've got questions about faith and about God, if you're confused, let us know that. We'd love to talk to you about it. But today... We come together and we just thank God for the fact that he is more powerful than any enemy in front of us and any enemy behind us. And so God, today we come before you and we thank you, God, that you are strong and you are powerful. The same God that created has the power to recreate out of our chaos and out of the consequence of our sin. Thank you for a mediator that's perfect in Jesus. And we pray this in his name, the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.